You're listening to Faith Community Church's weekly podcast. We hope this week's message from God is insightful and an inspiration to you. I'm going to invite my friend, Rebecca Jones, to come forward here. Rebecca is going to read to us scripture. She's going to read Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44 this morning. Um, and as she's coming, I just want to give you a little bit of a quick uh, advertisement. Next Sunday, we're going to have Albert Hung, who happens to be the, um, the director, leader of the Nazarene denomination who owns this whole facility, um, the district leader of it. And he's preached here before, and he's going to come and preach. And as well, the executive director of the community center that we've been building out over this last year. And some of you have been like, yeah, we haven't heard about that. Well, on next Sunday, I'm going to interview Megan and talk about what is happening. This building is, we're not calling it a church anymore. We're calling it the Midtown Community Center. And so um, the fact that that microphone doesn't work is probably why, um, because it's been, this building's being used, and probably people didn't put it in the saddle correctly, but that's okay, um, because it's being used. And so next week, I want to just plug that, come and hear from Albert. We're going to be given tours of the building, so you can see upstairs and all the different things and ways that with this building. The hope is that this building is the blessing to the Midtown community, and that it's being used seven days a week, all of the time, and helping people in our community. So just a plug for next week. With that, I have asked a, an amazing kindergarten teacher at Baymont School to read by the Bible. We both agree that what would have been better is like an, a, you know, a big giant picture book of this passage, but we're not getting that. We're getting Rebecca Jones's great reading voice. So let's read the scripture together. No pressure to have my great yeah. reading voice. <clears throat> After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Amen. It's God's word. Thanks, Rebecca. Let's pray. Father God, um, we know that we need you. Uh, We're in the season of Lent. 
when it becomes very clear to us as we're taking our time. Some of us are in that phase of um, some forms of fasting. Um, some of us are not, and, and that's fine. It's not. This is not a thing where we earn our salvation, but. We're in, a, we're in a season where the church, uh, your church worldwide, is, is, is at a time of trying to be much more introspective and thinking about what, is, what did it cost Jesus to save me, to save us? And so I ask this morning, as we together are looking at these moments where Jesus' heart breaks, that it will help us sort of be deepened and formed because of what we see in Jesus's heartbreak. And so we give you this morning in Jesus name. Amen. I absolutely thought that I had it right when we tried to start this church almost 17 years ago. Now I was pretty sure I was, I was getting it right. Um, a lot of my seminary teaching, seminary, for those of you who don't know, is a place that people who want to go into ministry go f- and they get a graduate degree or some doctorate of ministry or something, something, right, to be trained. And so while I was in seminary, all of the training that I had in seminary, um, so I thought, all the books that I read about planting churches and the need for churches and all that stuff, all, all the books that I read, so I thought, and all of the conferences I attended totally convinced me that God was passionate about having more churches, particularly in America. God wants more churches, and that those churches would grow in size and grow in influence. And so I became convinced. And so the greatest argument for me in all of those, and this is a pretty strong argument, was that, of course, God wanted more growing churches because that, that meant that if you need more churches because that meant that more and more people were coming to know Jesus. And obviously, God wants that. And so, of course, God also not only wanted more churches, but God wanted those churches to grow in size and to grow in influence because a growing keyword, growing church, so I was told, meant that the church was healthy because I was told healthy things always keep getting bigger. And so, of course, God wanted that because if you're growing bigger, that means you're healthy. And of course, God wants healthy churches, right? And so because of that, I became convinced and God became my partner. God became my partner. He became my partner in trying to achieve the success that I'd come to believe he wanted me to achieve for him, which was a new, growing, influential church. And that uh, led me to do some things. I did some things that I look back on and go, wow, interesting. It led me to sign off on overreaching, irresponsible budgets very irresponsible, willingly renaming presumption as, no, that's faith. Because, of course, God wanted our budget to get bigger. And even though the, only, the money's coming in was X, we were going to budget for Z because God wants this thing to grow. And so I would sign off on what was presumption and call it, well, that's faith. I, um, I pushed myself to be funnier. And many of you know I'm not a funny person. (laughs) I might tell a funny story, but I don't tell good jokes. 
Um, I'm not a joke guy, but I pushed myself. I needed to be funnier. I needed to be more interesting. I pushed myself to be a better preacher because God and I were going to make this church bigger and more influential through the power of my preaching. And God was going to be my partner in making that happen. I willingly renamed pushiness as leadership. As I edged the people around me at times into more extreme versions of go mode. Because we had to together pursue a bigger, better, faster, stronger church. That was me. And I, I will tell you, this is not the only time in my life or place where I've done this kind of thing of making God into my partner. But I have to admit, church might be the most surprising place that I have done it. I, in the early years of trying to start this church, I saw God as my partner, who I thought had signed off on my beliefs and my plans, and a partner that I thought, because he's my partner, that I could leverage him to gain control over my life and my ministry and my world. Now, I'm sharing my story because I want to try to help you expose yourself to yourself, I'm here to tell you from experience, you are way more lost and way more in danger than you know in the very place you think you're in a partnership with God. Let me give you some other examples of what this can look like. Let's talk about families. I had a seminary professor when I was going to, to, to seminary, David Ekman, seminary professor who once said in his pastoral work that his, in his experience that the most dysfunctional families that he had ever seen, ever, were Christian families who had concluded that the second coming of Jesus Christ was going to be in their home. <laughs> Think about what is that, what is he getting at? Here's what he's saying. He's saying that some Christians, now I get it, and he would talk about this, we get it, like people come out of lostness and brokenness and addictions, and they come to find Christ, and there's so much joy and hope in that, and they go, now the second coming is going to be in our home. He meant that some Christians viewed God as, we're going to make God our partner, and we're going to build the perfect home. And we're going to leverage God to gain control over that perfect state. In our home. And he said, those are the sickest, most dysfunctional families I ever worked with as a pastor. I think I would agree with him. Let's talk about nations. Countries. Now, we're going to see this play out in the passage that Rebecca just read for us. But let's just talk about, in our world even right now, there are nations who think God is partnered with their vision for the state. God's our partner in our vision for the state. Let me just name some. Russia, in bed with the Russian Orthodox Church. And the Russian Orthodox Church, in bed with Russia. With God is the vision for our state. Britain, Italy, France, in partnership with certain schisms of evangelicals and Catholics in those countries. Brazil, in partnership with schisms of evangelicals. And yes, folks, even our dear America, have leaders and groups trying to leverage God in order to gain control of their definition of a more pure, holy, thriving nation. Very dangerous. Let's talk about churches. 
There are churches that think, and I, I could tell you right now, there's some disgruntled people that I've had conversation with over the last 17 years who would point the finger at me and say, this, is, this might be what I'm doing here at this church. Maybe it's a fair critique. But I do know that there are churches that think God has partnered with their vision of the perfect church and the perfect parishioners who make up that church. And that there's spiritual abuse and power abuse and the leveraging of power in order to gain control over their church and their ministry. Folks, I'm just naming for you three obvious ones. I'm sure that you can think of other examples of this specific kind of lostness and danger that people can find themselves in thinking, yeah, God's our partner. We're all good. Today we're continuing this story called The Heartbreak of Jesus because as I was just praying, we're in this season of Lent, which is a season that in church history, the people of God try. Sometimes we do better than others, right? On a given day, we try to slow down and we try to be a little more mindful of the cost of what it costs Jesus to rescue us and to realize that the condition, yeah, we needed rescue. We needed saving And what we're doing is we're studying these moments of Jesus' heartbreak as he approached the cross because I think, we think, the preaching team, that it's in these moments, that it's in Jesus' moments of heartbreak as he goes to the cross, this suddenly starts to tell us a whole lot more about the reality of our condition and what it cost God to rescue us. So today, last week, if you were here with us, we talked about um, mortality. In fact, I would just say this. If you really felt like that message about Jesus' grief over the horror of mortality and the death of his friend Lazarus, I just listened yesterday to a great podcast, which I think I would recommend to listen to all the time. It's called The Good Faith Podcast, where he interviews a Christian doctor who's just published a book on how to die well. I think it's an important conversation for us to have in our time. It's something we don't talk enough about, about our mortality. But the scriptures do teach us, as Jesus was weeping over Lazarus, that when we have a better sense of our mortality, we live well. We live better, especially with our faith. So we talked about that last week. Today, Jesus grieves over the danger that we face when we embrace broken priorities and then we assume that God has partnered with us and our broken priorities. So let's get in and explore Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. Now, usually, all of you who've been in church at all or know any of the Bible stories, you know that the preaching camera zooms in on the triumphal entry of Jesus, right? This is, this is, you're like, Andy, aren't you preaching this on the wrong Sunday? You should be preaching this on Palm Sunday? Like, he's coming in, Hosanna, blessed is the name. Shouldn't we be singing that song, Hosanna? Yeah, and that, that's a, that would be a fair critique, and often this passage is used for that. Absolutely. But what I want to do is I want to focus our camera. We're actually, I, I was surprised to discover this this week, a lot of New Testament scholars think this is the emphasis that Luke is putting on this passage. It's not the triumphal entry. I want to put the camera lens on what most scholars think Luke is focusing on, which is Jesus is weeping and his lament over the city of Jerusalem. That's what we want to look at. Now, to do that, of course, to understand the gravity of Jesus's tears and his lament, we have to understand the bigger context of like what's happening around him as this is happening. And what we read is that as Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem, to begin the week of his passion, 
And he sent some disciples on ahead of him to say, hey, I've set aside a colt at Rent-A-Colt, just outside of Jerusalem. And they pick up the colt, and Jesus gets on top of the colt, and he starts riding it, by the way, in surprising fulfillment of the prophecies of the original testament that the messiah would ride into jerusalem triumphantly on a colt and he rides towards the city so we read that that's part of the context and as he's riding towards the city the people spread their cloaks on the ground remember this is the palm sunday passage normally and and then they they say verse 38 if you look at it it says they shouted blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord very triumphant And it says, Luke says, there was a crowd of disciples. Now, you and I, we're good students of the Bible, right? So we know, well, what does that mean? Well, we know if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, crowd of disciples would be a bunch of people along a spectrum from these dudes who are the 12, who are the committed 12 to Jesus, although one of them betrays him, and then an additional 60 committed disciples. So you got about 72 committed disciples. All the way down here to the fair weather fans of Jesus. And then everybody in between. This is a crowd of that whole spectrum of, of disciples. And they, and they come along and they're acting out. Throwing down their cloaks. Yay, Jesus. They're acting out what they wanted Jesus to be. Which was their political Messiah. You're going to come and restore the purity of blood and soil for Israel. Hosanna! That's what they're doing. Now, if you look back at Jesus in this passage, most of us, I I would, most of us would be thrilled at this kind of like joyous welcome from a big crowd. You know, you would think, you know, put the camera lens on Jesus and he's like, this is awesome. But Luke emphasizes for us that in the middle of this crowd, just the buzz around him, he's entering the city, prophecies fulfilled. But in the middle of this crowd that's just celebrating him, and in the middle of this assumption that they all have that their Messiah was going to become their partner in enacting their desires for their lives and their nation, the blood and the purity of the soil of their nation... The camera goes to Jesus and then zooms in. And we look as Jesus looks over the city, he weeps over it. It's not the same word for wept that we studied last week. When in John chapter 11, John uses the Greek word for wept there as Jesus wept over Lazarus. This more of this kind of quieter, shaking, sobbing. That's not this word. This is the word, the Greek word for anguish, anguish producing, wailing, like embarrassingly loud anguish wailing. In the middle of this big crowd singing his praises, Jesus is the only one in the scene who's wailing as his heart breaks over Israel's dangerous broken priorities. And then as he wails, this is trippy. As he wails, Jesus declares over Jerusalem what scholars call from the original testament, the Old Testament. It's called, we're reading it, a prophetic threat oracle. He wails out loud a prophetic threat 
oracle. You read them in the prophets of the Old Testament, or the original Testament, which is what, it, what a prophetic threat oracle does is it tells the truth. Here's what your condition is. And here's where this condition, if it remains, is going to lead you. And this or, these kinds of oracles, they always have three parts. And we'll kind of go through it. And Jesus uses all three parts. The first part of a prophetic threat oracle is the summons. Which in verse 42, Jesus says, here's the summons. If you, even you, who's the you? Well, he's talking about Jerusalem. He's, the summons is to the city of Jerusalem. Now, here's what's interesting about Jesus talking about Jerusalem. Jesus is using Jerusalem as code. It's a code word for the entire socio-spiritual political construct in Israel. It's not just the city of Israel. It's the whole thing in Israel. It's the construct which had arrived at assuming God's our partner. And their desired project of reestablishing their preferred vision of a more pure and holy blood and soil for their nation. That's what he's wailing about. In fact, uh, incredible scholar, N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, who's a scholar with the Anglican Church in Britain. Here's what he writes in his book, The Challenge of Jesus. He says, Jesus came to Jerusalem and brought a new agenda diametrically opposed to the agenda that had taken over the symbols of national identity. You see that's happening in our world anywhere? Taking over the symbols of national identity and was hiding all kinds of injustices behind the hijack. So Jesus' summons is Jerusalem, but not just Jerusalem. It's like all of Israel, the socio-spiritual political construct, assuming God's partnered with us in our project. And then comes the indictment, which is the rest of verse 42, where Jesus says, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. You can't even see it. Jesus indicts Jerusalem, all of Israel, for failing to see and embrace the rescue that God was putting right in their laps as he rode into Jerusalem on the colt. Couldn't see it. And that this failure was happening, there was a specific kind of blindness. Maybe you've had this in your life. A specific kind of blindness where you can't see what God's actually given you because you are so committed that God, no, 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 God, you are my partner in my priorities and my preferences and my plans. You can't see what God's giving you. That's the indictment. And finally, he lands on the verdict in verses 43 and verse 44. And he says this, the days will come upon you. When your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God coming to you. So because Jerusalem was stubbornly going to cling to what they wanted out of God... Jesus said they were going to miss out on the rescue that was being given to them from God. They were going to miss out. And tragically, all of you who know know, your ancient history from your senior year in high school or your freshman year in college or whatever it was, you know that literally 40 years later, within a generation in 70 CE, the common era, 
Rome came in, they were already there, but Rome came in with their armies and they leveled Jerusalem and they leveled the temple exactly the way Jesus describes it in these two verses. Exactly how he said it was going to happen. That's what happened. See, Luke, the author of the book of Luke, he wants us to see Jesus' heartbreaks over how dangerous, like dangerous, our position is and how far we are from the rescue that we need when we think God is our partner in our priorities. And this is the thing that I want us to see during this Lenten season, this, this second heartbreak, is that Jesus weeps over the ways we leverage God instead of trust God. Maybe I'm the only one that's happening in at times in my life. Jesus is wailing over the ways that we are trying to leverage God for the life we want out of him rather than trusting and loving God and trusting him for the life he's trying to give us. It's a really dangerous thing to assume that, of course, God's our partner, who we can now leverage to. We're we're, going to make the world a better place, God. We're just going to make it a better place according to our specifications. It's a dangerous thing. It's dangerous to completely miss God's grace for us that he's intending to give. Because we're too busy trying to leverage God for our plans and our preferences. That's dangerous. It's dangerous to think God's on our side. When in fact, the real truth is, God is fighting against us and our pride. It's dangerous to become a tool in the hand of the devil in the very places we think we're God's partner. I want you to think about this. I want you in your own life to be sobered by the thought that Jesus might just be wailing over you and me. Where Jesus might be wailing over you, where you won't lay down the thing you most want. And you assume he has partnered with you to give it to you. But it's actually the thing he's not going to give you because he knows it's going to hurt you. Be sobered if he's wailing over you for that. Be sobered if he's wailing over you where you're trying to wrestle a life out of God like Jacob wrestled the angel instead of receiving the life that God is trying to give you. Wrapped often in packaging that you're like, I don't like that packaging. But there's something special inside. Be sobered by the fact that Jesus might just be wailing over you where you're only interested in the things of God if he satisfies what you want. You're not as interested in the things of God if he's trying to give you what you need. Guess where assuming God was my partner to achieve a new, growing, influential church. Guess where that led me? I will say this. I'm super thankful for this. I absolutely thank God. It didn't lead me into success and the metrics of success as culture in America has defined it. Because I think if God had given me that, it would have been a double curse on my life. So I'm thankful he did not do that. No. Where did it all lead me? It led me into the magical mystery land of burnout. I was burnt out. Burnout 
I needed six month break to stop everything. A break from ministry. Some of you in this church, you remember when it happened 11 years ago, and you're like, yeah, you put us through it, Andy. That was rough. And I, yeah, it was rough for me. It led to some really hard conversations and counseling. A lot of rage, a lot of tears, a lot of what's next. Possibility, maybe for everybody's sake, it'd be better for me to just stop doing ministry and leave church. Very real possibility. And Jesus, he wailed over me. As I had to, number one, I had, I had to wake up to the special lostness and danger I was in of trying to make God my partner that I was going to leverage for my life and my ministry. I had to wake up. And number two, I had to surrender to my whole leverage partner project that I thought I had going with God. It was like, surrender that, Andy. Let that, that, let that go. I had to come to the realization that the question wasn't, can I leverage God to get what I want? Can I just show him, look at this good thing that I'm doing here. Look at, look at how well I'm, I'm, I'm calling presumption faith. Look how good a job I'm doing with that. And look how good a job I'm being pushy and calling it leadership. The question wasn't, can I leverage God to get me what I want? The question is, can I trust and serve the God who is giving me in real time, right now, right in front of my eyes, the, the life he wants to give me, he's trying to give me, and he's giving it to me in his way, not my way, in his time, not my time, and in his location, not the one that I necessarily want to be in, that he's placed me. He's trying to give me a life. I needed to surrender the leverage and partner project that I thought was going, going with God that had me in a really, really bad place so that I could really experience life and peace by simply getting back to trust, a trust and serve relationship, not a project, a relationship with the God who wanted to give me a real life. If I just opened up my hands to receive it as he was giving it to me. So here's where this all goes with what we see with Jesus wailing over us is that, of course, if he is weeping over us for the places in our lives, we're trying to leverage him rather than trust him. And what this leads us to is to recognize, i got to surrender any of the leverage and partner project and take up again the trust and serve relationship. And i I got to believe I'm speaking to everybody here where there's some place in your life where it's like, ooh, Dang it, I hate Lent. (laughs) See, as we slow ourselves down during this more thoughtful season of Lent, where in your life are you more lost than you know? And in more danger. Yeah, danger than you know. Because you actually think God's your partner in some pet project of your life. And you're trying to leverage God to work towards that end. Can you hear Jesus wailing over you in that area of lostness and danger in your life? The appeal, I think, of the Holy Spirit is to surrender leveraging God and get back to just simply trusting him. Remember, God is trying to give you a life. He's always trying to give you a life that's full. And and it just might be the life that's in this place, in this situation that you've been trying to leverage God to get out of. And he's like, that's the life I'm trying to give you. Can you surrender the leveraging God thing? Trust him. 
Can you surrender partnering with God and get back to simply serving God? We're, of course, as servants of God, we know this about our God. He is a God of grace. We're, of course, you can express to God your desires for your way of how you would like things to go. You, of course, you can express that. Of course, you can express to him the timing you would prefer, the, your preferred location. Of course. But once you and I express these desires and we leave them in his care, you get back to serving what he ultimately chooses in his sovereign goodness to be his way and his time and his location for your life and my life. I'm going to invite the band to come on back and get all plugged in and set to go. And as they do, I, I have to say, I, I, I hate to break it to us, but Jesus is just not going to endorse a lot of the checks we're cutting for him to sign in our life. So as we clear out of our lives, like the dangerous places, we are writing checks. We're endorsing these checks that we want him to sign for us. And we humbly receive the life that he's trying to give us in his way, in his time, and in the location he's placed us. When we get to that place and we surrender, here's one of the things that I've learned. Then life gets interesting. That's what happened for me in this church. Coming back to the very place I thought, I don't think I want to come back to that. It get, life gets interesting when you surrender and you get back to trusting God and serving God. It gets interesting as in what I mean by that is our lives get life to the full. Remember that thing that Jesus prom- promised us? It gets back to the life to the full kind of interesting. We become free and beautiful vessels of what Jesus is trying to do for us. Jesus is at work trying to save us and sanctify us. To save us is to get us safely into heaven forever. Back into the garden temple like Adam and Eve started the whole human race thing. And to sanctify us is to make us formed in the image of Jesus. When we surrender the whole project partner thing and we get back to just, I'm going to trust you. We get back to this beauty of what Jesus is doing for us. We get back to the beauty of what he's doing in us as he is transforming us into his beautiful image. We get back to what Jesus is trying to do through us. Where he's using us, where he's chosen to invest us he's investing you here for whatever season of time for a reason because you're his partner in his renewal project of everything and then we get back to the beauty of what God wants to do not just in us not just for us not just through us but despite us as his power is made perfect in our complete weakness Jesus wails over the ways We're trying to leverage God rather than trust him. Let's respond to the convicting of the Holy Spirit. And maybe you can hear the faint wail of Jesus in your soul. And surrender these leverage and partner projects for the trust and the serve relationship. Let's pray. Father God, um, so many places in my life has this been a problem? Pride. And then thinking, oh yeah, God's my partner. So I I know I'm not alone. God, help us to hear your spirit whispering, saying, you're lost. You're in danger. And to hear that word welcoming us back to trust. God, may we be people who get back to, to trust. 
may we surrender the project of trying to leverage you and let you lead us into the life that you're trying to give us. And we ask this in the strong name of our Jesus who rode into Jerusalem on that colt. Amen. Thank you for listening to this production of Faith Community Church in Santa Cruz, California. To visit our complete archive of sermons, to learn more about FCC, or to view our live streaming services, please visit us online at santacruzfaith.org.